0: Chapter 8, Part 2 of The History of the Philippines This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Establishment of Hospitals The city early had notable foundations of charity. The high mortality which visited the Spaniards in these islands and the frequency of diseases early called for the establishment of institutions for the orphan and the invalid. In Marga's time, there were the orphanages of San Andres and Santa Potenciana. There was a royal hospital, in charge of three Franciscans, which burned in the conflagration of 1603, but was reconstructed. There was also a hospital of Mercy, in charge of Sisters of Charity from Lisbon and the Portuguese possessions of India. Close by, the monastery of St. Francis stood then, where it stands today, the Hospital for Natives San Juan de Dios. It was a royal patronage, but founded by a friar of the Franciscan order, Juan Clemente. Quote, Here, end quote, says Morga, quote, are cured a great number of natives of all kinds of sicknesses, with much charity and care. It has a good house and offices of stone, and is administered by the barefooted religious of St. Francis. Three priests are there, and four lay brethren of exemplary life, who, with the doctors, surgeons, and apothecaries, are so dexterous and skilled that they work with their hands' marvelous cures, both in medicine and surgery. End quote. Note 1. Successes de las Filipinas. Page 323. Mortality among the Spaniards. Mortality in the Philippines in these years of conquest was frightfully high. The waste of life in her colonial adventures, indeed, drained Spain of her best and most vigorous manhood. In the famous old English collection of voyages, Published by Hakluyt in 1598, there is printed a captured Spanish letter of the famous sea captain Sebastian Biscaino on the Philippine trade. Biscaino grieves over the loss of life which had accompanied the conquest of the Philippines and the treacherous climate of the tropics. Quote, The country is very unwholesome for us Spaniards, for within these 20 years, of 14,000 which have gone to the Philippines, there are 13,000 of them dead and not past 1,000 of them left alive. End quote. Note 1. The Principal Navigations, Voyages, Traffics, and Discoveries of the English Nation by Richard Hakluyt, Master of Arts and sometimes student of Christ Church in Oxford. Imprinted at London, 1598. Volume 1. Page 560. The Spanish Population. The Spanish population of the islands was always small. At the beginning of the 17th century, certainly not more than 2,000, and probably less later in the century. Morga divides them into five classes: the prelates and the ecclesiastics, the encomenderos, colonizers and conquerors, soldiers and officers of war and marines, merchants and men of business, and the officers of His Majesty's government. Very few are living now, he says. Of those first conquistadores who won the land and effected the conquest with the adelantado Miguel Lopez de Legazpi. Note two: Successes de las Filipinas. Page 347 The Largest Cities Most of the Spanish population dwelt in Manila or in the five other cities which the Spaniards had founded in the first three decades of their occupation. These were as follows. The city of Nueva Segovia, at the mouth of the Cagayan, was founded in the governorship of Fronquilio, when the Valley of the Cagayan was first occupied and the Japanese colonists who had settled there were expelled. It had, at the beginning of the 17th century, 200 spaniards living in houses of wood there was a fort of stone where some artillery was mounted besides the 200 spanish inhabitants there were 100 regular spanish soldiers with their officers in the alcalde mayor of the province nueva segovia was also the seat of a bishopric which included all northern luzon the importance of the then promising city has long ago disappeared and the pueblo of laloc which marks its site is an insignificant native town The city of Nueva Cucheres, in the Camarines, was founded by Governor Sanbe. It, too, was the seat of a bishopric and had 100 Spanish inhabitants. The cities of Cebu and Iloilo, and the Besides were the cities of the holy name of God, Cebu, and on the island of Panay, Arevalo, or Iloilo. The first maintained something of the importance attaching to the first Spanish settlement. It had its stone fort and was also the seat of a bishopric. It was visited by trading vessels from the Moluccas, and by permit of the king, enjoyed for a time the unusual privilege of sending annually a ship loaded with merchandise to New Spain. Arevalo had about eighty Spanish inhabitants and a monastery of the Augustinians. The city of Fernandina or Bigan, which Salcedo had founded, was nearly without Spanish inhabitants. Still, it was the political centre of the great Ilocano coast, and it has held this position to the present day. Manila. But all of these cities were far surpassed in importance by the capital on the banks of the Pasi. The wisdom of Legazpi's choice had been more than justified. Manila, at the beginning of the 17th century, was unquestionably the most important European city of the East. As we have already seen, in 1580, Portugal had been annexed by Spain, and with her had come all the Portuguese possessions in India, China, and Malaysia. After 1610, the Dutch were almost annually warring for this colonial empire and Portugal regained her independence in 1640. But for the first few years of the 17th century, Manila was the political mistress of an empire that stretched from Goa to Formosa and embraced all those coveted lands, which for a century and a half had been the desire of European states. The governor of the Philippines was almost an independent king. Nominally, he was subordinate to the viceroy of Mexico, but practically he waged wars, concluded peace, and received and sent embassies at his own discretion. The Kingdom of Cambodia was his ally, and the states of China and Japan were his friends. The commercial importance of Manila Manila was also the commercial center of the Far East and the entrepot through which the kingdoms of Eastern Asia exchanged their wares. Here came great fleets of junks from China laden with stores. Morga fills nearly two pages with an enumeration of their merchandise, which included all matter of silks, brocades, furniture, pearls and gems, fruits, nuts, tame buffalo, Geese, horses, and mules, all kinds of animals, quote, even to birds in cages, some of which talk and others sing, and which they make perform a thousand tricks. There are innumerable other gewgaws and knickknacks, which among Spaniards are in much esteem. End quote. Note one. Successes de las Filipinas, page 352. Each year, a fleet of 30 to 40 vessels sailed with a new moon in March. The voyage across the China Sea, rough with the, mo- the monsoons, occupied fifteen to 20 days, and the fleet returned at the end of May or the beginning of June. Between October and March, there came, each year, Japanese ships from Nagasaki, which brought wheat, silks, objects of art, and weapons, and took away from Manila the raw silk of China, gold, deer horns, woods, honey, wax, palm wine, and wine of Castile. From Malacca and India came fleets of the Portuguese subjects of Spain, with spices, slaves, Negroes and Kaffirs, and the rich production of Bengal, India, Persia and Turkey. From Borneo too came the smaller craft of the Malays, who from their boats sold the fine palm mats, the best of which still come from Cagayan de Sulu and Borneo, slaves, sago, water pots and glazed earthenware, black and fine. From Siam and Cambodia also but less often, there came trading ships. Manila was thus a great emporium for all the countries of the East, the trade of which seems to have been conducted largely by and through the merchants of Manila. Trade with Mexico and Spain restricted. The commerce between the Philippines and Mexico and Spain, though it was of vast importance, was limited by action of the crown. It was a commerce which apparently admitted of infinite expansion, but the short-sighted merchants and manufacturers of the peninsula clamored against its development, and it was subjected to the severest limitations. Four galleons were at first maintained for this trade, which were dispatched two at a time in successive years from Manila to the port of Acapulco, Mexico. The letter on the Philippine trade, already quoted, stated that these galleons were great ships of 680 hundred tons apiece. Note 1. Laws of the Indies. Ace. 45-46. They went, quote, very strong with soldiers, end quote, and they carried the annual mail, reinforcements, and supplies of Mexican silver for trade with China, which has remained the commercial currency of the East to the present day. Later, the number of galleons was reduced to one. The rich cargoes of the galleons. The track of the Philippine galleon lay from Luzon northeastward to about the forty-second degree of latitude, where the westerly winds prevail, thence nearly straight across the ocean to Cape Mendocino in northern California which was discovered and mapped by Biscayno in 1602. Thence, the course lay down the western coast of North America, nearly 3,000 miles to the port of Acapulco. We can imagine how carefully selected and rich in quality were the merchandises with which these solitary galleons were freighted The pick of all the rich stores which came to Manila. The profits were enormous, 6 and 800 per cent. Biscayne wrote that with 200 ducats invested in Spanish wares and some Flemish commodities, he made 1,400 ducats. But, he added, in 1588, he lost a ship, robbed and burned by Englishmen. On the safe arrival of these ships depended how much the fortunes of the colony. Capture of the galleons For generations, these galleons were probably the most tempting and romantic prize that ever aroused the cupidity of privateer. The first to profit by this rich booty was thomas cavendish who in 1587 came through the straits of magellan with a fleet of three vessels like drake before him he ravaged the coast of south america and then steered straight away across the sea to the moluccas here he acquired information about the rich commerce of the philippines and of the yearly voyage of the galleon back across the pacific went the fleet of cavendish for the coast of california in his own narrative he tells how he beat up and down between Cape San Lucas and Mendocino until the galleon, heavy with her riches, appeared. She fell into his hands almost without a fray. She carried one hundred and twenty-two thousand pesos of gold and a great and rich store of satins, damask, and musk. Cavendish landed the Spanish on the California coast, burned the Santa Ana, and then returned to the Philippines and made an attack upon the shipyard of Iloilo, but was repulsed. He sent a letter to the governor at Manila, boasting of his capture, and then sailed for the Cape of Good Hope and home. There is an old story that tells how with sea-worn ships came of the Thames, their masts hung with silk and the sails. From this time on, the venture was less safe. In 1588, there came to Spain the overwhelming disaster of her history, the destruction of the Great Armada. From this date, her power was gone, and her name was no longer a terror on the seas. English freebooters controlled the oceans, and in 1610, the Dutch appeared in the east, never to withdraw. The City of Manila 300 Years Ago We can hardly close this chapter without some further reference to the city of Manila as it appeared 300 years ago. Morga has fortunately left us a detailed description from which the following points in the main are drawn. As we have already seen, Legaspi had laid out the city on the blackened sites of the town and fortress of the Mohammedan prince, which had been destroyed in the struggle for occupation. He gave it the same extent and dimensions that it possesses today. Like other colonial capitals in the Far East, it was primarily a citadel and refuge from attack. On the point between the sea and the river, Legazpi the had begun the famous and permanent fortress of Santiago. In the time of the Great Adelantado, it is probably only a wooden stockade, but under the governor Santiago de Vera, it was built up of stone. Cavendish, 1587, describes Manila as, quote, an unwalled town and of no great strength, end quote. But under the improvements and completions made by Dasmariñas about 1590, it assumed much of its present appearance. Its guns thoroughly commanded the entrance to the River Pasig and made the approach of hostile boats from the harbor-side impossible. It is noteworthy, then, that all the assaults that have been made upon the city, from that of Limahong, to those of the British in 1762 and of the Americans in 1898, have been directed against a southern wall by an advance from Malate. The Smeriñas also enclosed the city with a stone wall, the base from which the present noble rampart has arisen. It had originally a width of from seven and a half to nine feet. Of its height, no figure is given. Morga says simply that with its buttresses and turrets, it was sufficiently high for the purposes of defense. The Old fort. There was a stone fort on the south side facing Ermita, known as the Fortress of Our Lady of Guidance, and there were two or more bastions, each with six pieces of artillery, St. Andrew's, now a power magazine at the southeast corner, and St. Gabriel's, overlooking the Parian district where the Chinese were settled. The three principal gates to the city, with the smaller wickets and posterns, which opened on the river and sea, were regularly closed at night by the guard which made the rounds. At each gate and wicket was a permanent post of soldiers and artillerists. The Plaza de Armas, adjacent to the fort, had its arsenal, stores, powder works, and a foundry for the casting of guns and artillery. The foundry, when established by Ronquillo, was in charge of a Pampangan Indian called Pandapira. The Spanish Buildings of the City The buildings of the city, especially the Casas Reales and the churches and monasteries, had been durably erected of stone. Teorino claims that the hooing of stone, the burning of lime, and the training of native and Chinese artisans for this building was the work of the Jesuit father, Sedeño. He himself fashioned the first clay tiles and built the first stone house, and so urged and encouraged others, himself directing the building of public works, that the city, which a little before had been solely of timber and cane, had become one of the best constructed and most beautiful in the Indies. Note 1. Relacion de las Islas Filipinas Chapter 5, page 23, and Chapter 13, page 47. He it was also who sought out Chinese painters and decorators and ornamented the churches with images and paintings. Within the walls, there were some 600 houses of a private nature, most of them built of stone and tile, and an equal number outside in the suburbs, or arabales, all occupied by Spaniards. Todos son vivienda y población de los españoles. Note 2. Morga Successes de las Islas Filipinas, page 223. This gives some 1,200 Spanish families or establishments, exclusive of the religious, who in Manila numbered at least 150. Note 3, ibid., page 321. The garrison, at certain times, about 400 trained Spanish soldiers who had seen service in Holland in the Low Countries and the official classes. The Malecon and the Luneta. It is interesting at this early date to find mention of the famous recreation drive, the Paseo de Bagumbayan, now commonly known as the Malicon and Luneta. Quote, Manila, quote, says our historian, quote, has two places of recreation and land. The one, which is clean and wide, extends from the point called Our Lady of Guidance for about a league along the sea and through the street and village of natives, called Bagumbayan, to a very devout hermitage, Ermita, called The Hermitage of Our Lady of Guidance, and from there a good distance to a monastery and mission, Doctrina, of the Augustinians, called Mahalat, Malate, end quote. Note 1, Morga, Successos, page 324. The other drive lay out through the present suburb of Concepcion, then called Lagio, Tupaco, where was the monastery of the Franciscans. The Chinese in Manila, early Chinese commerce. We have seen that even as long as 300 years, Manila was a metropolis of the Eastern world. Vessels from many lands dropped anchor at the mouth of the Pasig, and their merchants set up their booths within her market. Slaves from far distant India and Africa were sold under her walls. Surely it was a cosmopolitan population that the shifting monsoons carried to and from her gates. But of all these Eastern races, only one has been a constant and important factor in the life of the islands. This is the Chinese. It does not appear that they settled in the country or materially affected the life of the Filipinos until the establishment of Manila by the Spaniards. The Spaniards were early desirous of cultivating friendly relations with the Empire of China. Salcedo, on his first punitive expedition to Mindoro, had found the Chinese junk, which had gone ashore on the western coast. He was careful to rescue these voyagers and return them to their own land with a friendly message inviting trading relations. Commerce and immigration followed immediately the founding of the city. The Chinese are without question the most remarkable colonizers in the world. They seem able to thrive in any climate. They readily marry with every race. The children that follow such unions are not only numerous, but healthy and intelligent. The coasts of China teem with overcrowding populations. Emigration to almost any land means improvement of the Chinese of poor birth. These qualities and conditions, with their keen sense for trade and their indifference to physical hardship and danger, make the Chinese almost a dominant factor wherever political barriers have not been raised against their entrance. The Chinese had early gained an important place in the commercial and industrial life of Manila. A letter to the king from Bishop Salazar shows that he befriended them and was warm in their praise. Note 1. Carta de de las Cosas de la China y de los Chinos del Parian de Manila, 1590, in Retana, Archivo, Volume 3. This was in 1590 and there were then in Manila and Pondo about 7,000 resident Chinese, and they were indispensable to the prosperity of the city. Importance of Chinese labor and trade In the early decades of Spanish rule, the Philippines were poor in resources, and the population was sparse, quite insufficient for the purposes of the Spanish colonizers. Thus, the early development of the colony was based upon Chinese labor and Chinese trade. As the early writers are fond of emphasizing, from China came not only the finished silks and costly wares which in large part were destined for the trades in New Spain and Europe, but also cattle, horses and mares, foodstuffs, metals, fruits, and even ink and paper. Quote, and what is more, end quote, says Chirino. Quote, from China come those who supply every sort of service, all dexterous, prompt, and cheap, from physicians and barbers to burden bearers and porters. They are the tailors and shoemakers, metal workers, silversmiths, sculptors, locksmiths, Painters, masons, weavers, and finally every kind of servitors in the commonwealth. End quote. Note one. Relacion de las Islas Filipinas, page eighteen. See also Salazar, Carta Relacion. Distrust of the Chinese. In those days, not only were the Chinese artisans and traders, but they were also farmers and fishermen, occupations in which they are now not often seen. But in spite of their economic necessity, The Chinese were always looked upon with this favor and their presence with dread. Plots of murder and insurrection were supposedly rife among them. Writers object that their numbers were so great that there was no security in the land. Their life was bad and vicious. Through intercourse with them, the natives advanced but little in Christianity and customs. They were such terrible eaters that they made food scarce and prices high. If permitted, they went everywhere through the islands and committed a thousand abuses and offenses. They explored every spot river, estero, and harbor, and knew the country better even than the Spaniard himself, so that if any enemy should come, they would be able to cause infinite mischief. Note 2. Successes de las Islas Filipinas, page 364. When we find so just and high-minded a man as the president of the Audiencia, Morga, giving voice to such charges, we may be sure that the feeling was deep and terrible and practically universal among all Spanish inhabitants the first massacre of the Chinese. Each race feared and suspected the other, and from this mutual cowardice came in 1603 a cruel outbreak and massacre. Three Chinese mandarins arrived in that year, stating that they had been sent by the emperor to investigate a report that there was a mountain in Cavite of solid precious metal. This myth was no more absurd than many pursued by the Spaniards themselves in their early conquests, and it doubtless arose from the fact that Chinese wares were largely purchased by Mexican bullion but the Spaniards were at once filled with suspicion of an invasion and their distrust turned against the Chinese in the islands. How far these latter were actually plotting sedition and how far they were driven into attack by their fears at the conduct of the Spaniards can hardly be decided. But the fact is that on the evening of St. Francis Day, the Chinese of the Parian rose. The dragon banners were raised, war gongs were beaten, and that night the pueblos of Quiapo and Tondo were burned and many Filipinos murdered. In the morning, a force of 130 spaniards under don luis das mariñas and don Tomas bravo were sent across the river and in the fight nearly every spaniard was slain the chinese then assaulted the city but according to the tradition of the priests they were driven back in terror by the apparition of saint francis on the walls they threw up forts on the side of the parian and in Bilao, but the power of their wild fury was gone and the spaniards were able to dislodge and drive them into the country about san pablo del monte from here they were dispersed with great slaughter. 23,000 Chinese are reported by Zuniga to have perished in this edition. If his report is true, the number of Chinese in the islands must have increased very rapidly between 1590 and 1603. Restriction of Chinese Immigration and Travel Commerce and immigration began again almost immediately. The number of Chinese, however, allowed to remain was reduced. The Chinese ships that came annually to trade were obliged to take back with them the crews and passengers which they brought. Only a limited number of merchants and artisans were permitted to live in the islands. They were confined to three districts in the city of Manila, and to the great market, the Alcaiceria or Parian. The word Parian was first used for the Chinese quarter adjoining the walled city on the present site of the Botanical Garden, but about 1640 the new Parian was built in Binondo, about the present Calle San Fernando. It consisted of a block of stores in the form of a square, with small habitations above them. Here was the Great Market of Manila. They could not travel about the islands, nor go two leagues from the city without a written license, nor remain overnight within the city after the gates were closed, on penalty of their lives. They had their own alcalde and judge, a tribunal and jail, and on the north side of the river, Dominican friars, who had learned the Chinese language, had erected a mission and hospital. It was a separate barrio for the baptized Chinese and their families, to the number of about 500. The Chinese in the Philippines from the earliest time to the present have been known by the name of Sangleyes. The derivation of this curious word is uncertain, but Navarre, who must have understood Chinese well, says that the word arose from a misapprehension of the word spoken by the Chinese, who first presented themselves at Manila. Quote, Being asked what they came for, they answered, Changley, that is, we come to trade. The Spaniards, who understood not their language, conceiving it to be the name of a country, and putting the two words together, made one of them, by which they still distinguished the Chinese, calling them Sangleyes. End quote. The Japanese colony. There was also in these early years quite a colony of Japanese. Their community lay between the Parian and the barrio of Lagio. There were about 500, and among them the Franciscans claimed a goodly number of converts. The Filipino district of Tondo, we have described at some length the cities south of the river and the surrounding suburbs, most of them known by the names they hold today. North of the Pasig was the great district of Tondo, the center of that strong, independent Filipino feeling, which at an early date was colored with Mohammedanism, and to this day is strong in local feeling. This region is thriven and built up until it has long been by far the most important and populous part of the metropolis, but not until very recent times was it regarded as a part of the city of Manila, which name is reserved for the walled city alone. A bridge across the Pasig on the side of the present Puente de Espana connected the two districts at a date later than Morga's time, and it was one of the first things noticed by Navaret, who, without describing it well, says it was very fine. It was built during the governorship of Nino de Tabora, who died in sixteen thirty two. Note one. Zuniga, Historia de las Filipinas, page 252. Montero states that it was of stone and that this same bridge stood for more than two centuries, resisting the incessant traffic and the strength of floods. Note 2, Historia General de Filipinas, volume 1, page 187. The decline of Manila during the next century. Such was Manila 35 and 40 years after its foundation. It was at the zenith of its importance. The capital of the eastern colonies, the mart of Asia, more splendid than Goa, more powerful than Malacca or Macao, more populous and far more securely held than Ternate and Tidore. Truly, end quote, explained Chirino, quote, it is another Tyre, so magnified by Ezekiel. End quote. It owed its great place to the genius and daring of the men who founded it, to the freedom of action which it had up to this point enjoyed and to its superlative situation. In the years that followed, we have to recount for the most part only the process of decline. Spain herself was fast on the wane. A few years later, and the English had almost driven her navies from the seas. The Portuguese had regained their independence and lost empire. The Dutch were in the east, harrying Portuguese and Spaniard alike and fast monopolizing the rich trade. The commerce and friendly relations with the Chinese, on which so much depended, were broken by massacre and reprisal, and, most terrible and piteous of all, the awful wrath and lust of the Malay pirates, for decade after decade, was to be visited upon the archipelago. The colonial policy of the motherland, selfish, short sighted, and criminal, was soon to make its paralyzing influence felt upon trade and administration alike. These things were growing and taking place in the next period, which we have to consider, the years from sixteen hundred to sixteen sixty three they left the Philippines despoiled and insignificant for a whole succeeding century a decadent colony and an exploited treasure end of chapter eight part two recording by hilary hovind